This is Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health and Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today are Sophia Vargas. Hello, Sophia Vargas. I am a program manager in Google's open source programs office, specifically our research and operations team. And I'm also a member of the Chaos community and recently elected member of the governing board. Hi, I'm Kate Stewart. I'm here with the Linux Foundation and have been involved with chaos and caring about metrics pretty much since the start of the project, wanting to see how we actually reuse open source effectively and how we can keep it sustainable. I also work on embedded open source projects where it's always hard and fun to measure things, to put it mildly. So this is going to be a good session. And myself, Georg Link. Hi, everyone. Good to be back with you. I'm also one of the co-founders of the Chaos Project on the governing board. And you keep hearing the same thing with every episode that I do. So I'll just leave it at that. And I am super excited to have Avi Press with us today from SCARF. And we met at the Linux Foundation Member Summit. And that was one of the first in-person events again last year, at the end of last year. So anyway, we had a really good conversation. I'm happy to bring that to everyone and elevate this today. So Avi, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. Would you maybe give us a brief introduction to who you are and what brought you into open source and where you are today? Yeah, so I'm a software developer by background. I really love building developer tools. I'm very into functional programming and programming languages. And yeah, I got my start in open source just by building tools that I wanted to use myself and sharing them and having a community grow around them and stuff like that. And that got me very exposed to what it's like to be an open source maintainer. And also in my just professional life as a software engineer at Pandora for a couple of years and you know, got really exposed to using open source on the industry side and getting experience for dealing with open source projects and communities on the consumer side and really experiencing some of the difficulties of being on either side of that equation is what led me to start Scarf. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of the company. And really what we try to do is help connect the two sides of that coin. So enabling open source maintainers to have a better understanding of how their software is being used what companies are relying on those tools, how they're relying on them, et cetera. And so, yeah, trying to get maintainers more visibility into that and trying to get companies to be more involved with the open source they rely on, contributing back in various ways in a more robust way than is uh, you know, often available today. I think in general, I really love thinking about how various problems can be solved with better data sharing initiatives. There's just so many areas of life where just people are not collaborating in ways that they could be. And I think data is uh, a really big part of that, and especially in the open source space. I feel like you just described my mission in life as well. <laughs> as an analyst, I, I am squarely behind trying to 
investigate how to understand things with data so that we can inform the decisions that we make and the strategies that we implement. But speaking about the data, I wanted to get a little bit more into the tool itself, knowing that your tool is responsible for collecting information about something. And can you explain a little bit about how the tool works, what it's collecting and how that information is presented? Yeah. So you can think of SCARF generically as just a platform for open source distribution and analytics and down the road commercialization. So there's various pieces to that platform, various ways where we can collect data for maintainers. That depends on kind of the ecosystem that we're talking about. So the, I would say the like flagship part of the kind of central piece to our platform is called SCARF Gateway. And the idea is that it's a layer, like a, a redirect and proxy layer that can sit in front of package registries, in front of artifact registries or stores. and basically gives you like a central endpoint where you can have all of your downloads from, whether they're Docker containers or binaries or just URLs, whatever that might be. We can sit in front of it, capture information that flows through, and then expose that to maintainers. In addition, we have other tools that complement that. So for instance, we have a tool called Documentation Insights, where you can embed tracking images in your open source documentation, but also maybe your project website or really any web properties that your project may have. So you can get a better sense of what pages on my documentation are getting read the most by you know people where in the world and how are they getting there and these kinds of things which given that open source docs may be rendered like anywhere on the web that you may not be able to actually look into, these kinds of just like tracking images give maintainers a way to get a handle on where on the web these things are getting looked at. We also have some SDKs where you can actually instrument some telemetry into, say, an NPM library and expanding to other languages over time. And so a lot of these pieces fit together to give maintainers a better and better picture of how their software is getting used over time. And one of the things where this is getting really cool and powerful and not even something that we expected when we started building this was these pieces actually can start to fit together. And so if someone lands on, say, your README on Docker Hub, Documentation Insights will pick that up. Then they pull down your Docker container with a Docker pull. We see that we can start to correlate those that they came from the same source, for instance. And then as users do more and more around your open source, we're just building more and more ways you can get a better view of that and better understand your user's journey with your project. Are you also looking at being able to generate out the software bill materials and making that available at all? Or is that something you've been contemplating? It's definitely something that we have been contemplating. It's not something we've addressed yet, but because we you know, see more and more of this like package information and kind of yeah. how even dependencies are pulled down dynamically. It is something that we are in a good position to do down the road. Yeah, the first thing that I actually built for Scarf, which is not something that we are actively doing, was like a system package manager. And it's something that we may come back to down the road, which is in like a really good spot to look at SBOMs and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, for now, we're really concerned about usage analytics and helping expose that to maintainers in such a way that respects user privacy and user preferences related to privacy, which is a key learning that are actually quite different in terms of what data is being collected versus how that data is being collected and people's opinions and preferences around that. And navigating that has been the fun and difficult part of what we do of kind of navigating just the very murky and sometimes inconsistent thing that is user preferences and behavior. Yeah, that, that's actually a thing that we've been talking a fair amount in the chaos product as well, just for the sake of 
recommending metrics and starting to realize what we're recommending could incur some of these, I don't want to say conflict, but disagreement with various different layers of privacy and policy. And working with any kind of data aggregation tool, I think that's always sort of the, the broader complexity, especially if you're dealing with multiple different platforms and undefined user spaces. And so I'm curious from your view, is this something where you're defaulting to the existing platform policies or is there any sort of encouragement to the maintainers or the project community that at what point do they need to take ownership of the privacy policy and data handling around what they are doing with broader information around their user base? So our policy by default has been basically to just not store any personally identifiable information. And so that choice alone simplified a lot of these questions because, for instance, there's no GDPR footprint if you don't have PII. And so a lot of those decisions that a maintainer could have to grapple with are kind of just already answered. Like, we can't give you a raw IP address because we don't even have it. And so that is one of those things that I think, yeah, simplified a lot of these questions. But it is something that we are working with the SCARF community to see, well, if you do want to get a little bit deeper and that is appropriate for your project, like what are your options? And different communities have had different policies with data retention. If you look at, say, package registries and like, what is the package registry store about you? NPM stores quite a bit about you. I don't know, the Haskell registry may be a lot less so. I think bridging these practices and making them more both explicit to the maintainers, more explicit to the community is definitely something that we try to do. But because this practice of collecting usage information is something that has historically been a bit against the grain, our approach was be very conservative and we'll look for the right way to expand to get maintainers. If they need more information about X or Y or Z, we'll work with them to figure out a way that we can do that in a private manner, a way that does this correctly. But the choice has been to be very careful with how we go about doing that and to start conservatively. There's about to become a census coming out that they've done come in through people who've been doing scans of code. Oh, okay. And I think actually the usage aspect that you've got would really interestingly complement to see what people are actually using in the field as opposed to what just the scans are. So we've got multiple people who are doing the scanning of code as part of their products and then giving us their data. And then we've got, we're aggregating it all together. So it's neutralized. Interesting. So we're, so we're looking to see if we find another data. Security scanners. These are coming in from security scanners and, you know, chasing dependencies. But the usage aspect of it is, you know, these are people coming in who have been paid for a service for products for the security and so forth. We're doing the scanning of the dependency tracking and everything else. So that sort of gives us a, a clue where these lovely little hidden dependencies are in that ecosystem, which is what I, what I was asking about dependencies. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at the census one report, you'll sort of see in the chaos community was helping with that one in terms of trying to sort of show community usage profiles there. But there's another one that's coming out in the next month or two that actually has gotten, because we had three SCA tool vendors contributing to it so we could actually have anonymized data. It's what we're going to be doing is looking at, okay, where are the common projects people are looking at? That's going to basically motivate some of the work that's going on in the OpenSSF stuff. (laughs) Try to figure out where there's weak points in our ecosystem. So the fact that, but that's just coming in from scanners and looking at it. I think actually we could get the usage data in that even cooler. But that's me. I think my opinion on it is if we can, we should. And so maybe let's follow up about that sometime. I would love to. I mean, even if it was like super limited to start, so rolled up. I, I, just like think, there's... I just think quite frankly, raw counts of the number of times people are using a package. You don't even have to give the data of who's using it. 
It's just the number of people using the package, I think would help. That we could do. That we could definitely do. And it sounds like we have collaboration going on here with Kate and Sophia and Avi. It's great that this conversation can spark. Well, I do feel like this is a bit of the like the missing puzzle piece for a while. I think I remember we're working with the downloads coming out of the API of GitHub and just the like disclaimer of, well, we're going to delete this after 30 days and it's not accurate. So please don't use it. (laughs) And I I know. And like one of the things that's also sort of interesting is the rule of thumb I tend to use that seems to be crowd wisdom around me is you've got 10 users for every one contributor that's going in. And I'd love to be able to actually quantify, is that a real simple metric? Oh, we'll do analysis <laughs> on it. Yeah. And you might be able to see at the aggregate level. Yeah. Huh. Like, you know, can we actually get a handle on how many people are actually using a package? And, but the thing that's subtle here is that the whole dependencies and the S-bombs, if someone's using something, it's all buried within. Is it going to be showing up? Right. Like for everything, it just always depends, unfortunately. But yeah, I think for the most part, it often does because you're usually fetching that dependency tree. That and you might be able to see more about the context. You can see even the comment on like what operating system is being used. And I think none of these things are used in isolation and getting a better understanding of how they're used, even if it's just if it's one layer dependency of what is this tied to that's being called or what is that calling or what it's tied to and just sort of where is it sandwiched inside a stack? And no, there's a lot more details yeah. that are coming out of this. It's just, right. there are natural groupings of spaces. And then I think about the software as sort of a, a taxonomy and a grouping of industry as we evolve technology categories. How do we even bucket things, what things work together and how we distinguish what does what? Because it's increasingly blended. And I think something like just usage statistics and usage in context statistics can help you make some of these groupings in a much more informed way. Yes. Absolutely. 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 Awesome. So that is the thing about Scarf that got me super excited. We can finally answer the question, how many users do we have? Who is using our software? This is a question that has plagued us for a really long time. And I keep telling people that, no, we don't want the call home function in your software. That's creepy. We don't want to put If you want to download this, please enter your information here. There's a lot of things that you or companies are doing to try to keep track of their commercial software and who is using it. And open source, a lot of those tools are not available. So I'm really excited that Scarf is addressing this problem. Yeah, I think that was a really key learning for us that phoning home is itself like kind of a non-starter for a lot of different communities. And we learned this the hard way. The very first thing that like really started taking off that we built is a package called Scarf.js. On NPM, it's at Scarf slash Scarf. And originally when we launched it, it started really taking off with a few different very popular React satellite libraries. The maintainers loved it. But what happened was it quickly ran into a lot of end user pushback. And we learned that it was really about the expectations of the community. We weren't actually collecting anything more than NPM was collecting. We're actually collecting less. NPM already has this data. There's no additional data being collected about you, but just the fact that running NPM install could potentially send data to a third party that you didn't really know about ahead of time really was not something that people liked. It ended up really kind of erupting in in a few different React communities. The maintainers actually ended up removing it from, from a lot of their libraries because of the pressure that they were getting just around those mechanics. And so... We really dug in with a lot of users about like, okay, well, 
where exactly does this cross the line for you? How does that work? What are your opinions on this? And we heard a lot of different things, but it really came down to a matter of expectations. And one of the things that someone said was like, well, I'm okay with visiting a website and Google Analytics tracking me or Pixel tracking me because I expect that. When I ran NPM install, I didn't expect Scarf to be, you know, grabbing any of that information. So we were like, uh, okay, well, we can build some pixel tracking tools for maintainers then if, if you all are okay with that. And they were. And the cool thing was that every single maintainer that removed Scarf.js from their NPM libraries, they're all using documentation insights now. So that's really cool. And what that showed to me was that this data is very valuable for maintainers. And if we can give them a way to capture it in a way that respects end users, that's going to benefit everyone. You have more informed maintainers, you get more proactive maintainers, you get better handled software, you get better software as a result. Everyone is winning from that. And so I look at what we do as partly, you know, there's a lot of technical problems to solve here, but it's also just a lot of social problems, figuring out what works and what doesn't and just being okay with having people tell you, hey, I don't like this. You need to change what you're doing and listening to why and adapting. So I think that in itself, even without your story, is just a meaningful exercise. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the Sustain community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. I'm curious, just from a practical standpoint with Scarf, what is the user experience? Do they know they're interacting with Scarf? Is that coming from the project community or is that coming from the platform? Like, how do they know this is happening and where that information is going? Yeah, it really depends on what tool is being used. For things like tracking pixels in a readme, you're typically not going to see that or know about it. We encourage maintainers to be upfront about what is being tracked and how, but you know, ultimately they can just embed an image in a readme and see the loads of that image. With say our package SDKs, we were printing a very large thing to the console right before it happened and giving people like five seconds if they wanted to opt out of it. I mean, it would say like, this is the library using Scarf.js. Here's the payload that is being sent. Here's how you opt out. Here's another way to opt out. We're being very upfront about it. But ultimately, it didn't matter because we were phoning home. People were like, I don't, I don't care. With Scarf Gateway, because we're basically just kind of augmenting the existing stack of whatever is being hosted, you may or may not know Scarf is in the picture. By default, we give you a Scarf URL that you can distribute through. So it could be like your username dot gateway.scarf.sh slash your image and run Docker pull on that. And then you'd know very explicitly it's Scarf. But we actually allow people to connect their own domains as well. And so it may just look like you're pulling something from a private registry, but in fact, you may be hitting Scarf and getting redirected to Docker Hub or GitHub container registry or wherever the thing happens to be hosted. We're just essentially that pass-through layer. And so we just encourage maintainers to be open about it and we do what we can, but really we're just trying to give maintainers more control over their distribution channels, more ownership of their distribution channels, rather than letting it be owned by whatever registry they happen to be locked into that year, which is unfortunately a lot of the dynamics of software distribution today. 
I have a, another question that's going to take us a slightly different direction, but just from a data analyst view, a lot of this information is, I'll put it delicately, very messy. And one of the things that I keep coming back to in your discussion is this idea of what is a user and knowing that there's a lot of overlap between activity between users, contributors and everything in between. I'm just kind of curious how that's handled in the tool or if it's handled at all and sort of left up the maintainers. Yeah, I think this is something that we right now have a fairly naive approach to and are getting smarter about over time. So today, the notion of a user is the hash of an IP address and it gets you somewhere. It does give you some stability, but yeah, like a lot of people could be, say, pulling down a package within an internal VPN and it all looks like it's coming from the same place. But the reason we're not going any further than that is like as soon as you start looking at, say, like MAC addresses or device IDs, that quickly becomes uh, a bit more sketchy and icky when it <laughs> comes to tracking people. And so that gives us something without going too far. When it comes to things like web page loads, you can also look at things like user agents. And we do some of that, but we basically have to keep the stable identifier from a given traffic source consistent across our tooling. And so the user agent of your browser viewing the documentation versus the user agent of your Docker client or your NPM client or PIP client or whatever that might look like are not the same. And the only thing that we have in common there is the way that we're hashing an IP address and storing that hash. But yeah, over time, what would be great, for instance, is if more package managers and other artifact managers would have some kind of way to identify yourself optionally that would allow the backends to track more things like that. And we may try to introduce more of those practices over time, especially as we build some of these tools out ourselves. You know, for now, when these kinds of tools are built by tons of different people all over the world that are not collaborating in any way, shape or form, like this is kind of where this is the common denominator that we're starting from. <laughs> we're all smiling at each other because we're wondering which follow-up question to ask. In that case, I guess just knowing that that's how you're identifying users and coming back to the contributor piece and wondering how you encourage maintainers to remove the noise of contributors making downloads to, and in terms of their own work on the project, that is going to show up as a download and potentially will show up as a user, even if their relationship to the project is not usage. So, I mean, I think, you know, by default, we're not doing it. We're not doing that. That's just part of the data that you get. And for some projects, that's what you want because understanding, oh, someone ran NPM install inside of that package and we saw what happened there. Oh, someone is kind of working on a fix or something like that. We are building smarter and smarter filters into this. You can specify your own ways to say, this is a piece of data I don't care about, ignore this. And just giving the maintainers control to specify what it is they do and don't care about. It's one of those things that kind of depends on which particular tool we are talking about. You know, for a lot of them, like we will respect things like do not track headers and those kinds of things. And so down the road, maybe there will be developer tooling that will just kind of know to turn that stuff off and say, like, this is not a real download or something like that. We'll get smarter about that over time. But for now, it's just we look at this as we are acting on behalf of the maintainers, on behalf of these projects. It's not really up for us to decide what is noise and what is it to them. Give them everything, let them decide how to rank those kinds of data. And so that's why within Scarf, you can just like export the raw data that we've collected for you and visualize it in however you want to analyze it. But we also provide tools to do it within the platform. So one of the things you mentioned earlier is that having these insights and this data about the usage of open source can help an open source project to become more sustainable. and. I was just curious, 
to what examples have you already seen be put in place? I can think of several versions where this data allows us to get venture capitalist funding, start a company, show that, hey, we're doing good, but there are probably other ways that this data is useful and helpful for projects to be sustainable. This is probably my favorite part about working on this problem and, and in open source generally is that you put tools out there, you put data out there and you don't really know how people are going to use it ahead of time. And sometimes it, you'll be very surprised in terms of how these things get utilized. And scarf data, I think, is no exception to that. There are some obvious ones, I would say. So like as a maintainer myself, one of the things that was sometimes hard for me to evaluate was by default, I would build tools that would like run on Unix systems. And I didn't have a Windows machine that was not really keeping Windows in mind as I was building. And sometimes I would get like a bug like, hey, like X, Y or Z does not work on Windows. And then the immediate thought was, well, how many people are using this tool on Windows? I don't actually know. And so that's actually one of the things that I think people have been surprised about in their scarf data is just like what platform breakdown your users actually are on. And maybe some systems are actually not quite as important as you might have thought, or maybe they're way more important than you thought and you need to prioritize them. And if you want to learn something like that today, you basically are going to put out a survey <laughs> and like we're the most technically sophisticated folks on the planet. And we're distributing surveys to try to understand like what platforms are everybody on. And that's like fundamentally kind of crazy, I think. Even just something as basic as that, I think, can really inform prioritization of issues and not have you spend a bunch of time working on something that is only going to really help a couple of people. And yes, having people like thumb up an issue on GitHub does have a signal of that. But like how many people are actually doing that? Is that actually representative of your entire community? We don't actually know. And I think what people learn is like there's a lot of people quietly, very heavily using a piece of software, never engaging with the project at all. And so like, that's, I think, really one thing that I would underline with this approach is that people use open source in all kinds of ways. Not everyone is part of the community, quote unquote, here. Like some people just quietly use software themselves and, and, and do stuff. And by building kind of the main path of least resistance to use a piece of software, one that contributes back to the project with just anonymized usage data, then just by using the project, you're contributing to the project. And that's like a really, I think that's a very powerful way to think about an open source community as like, we're all contributing just by using it. That was a very cool idea, I think. Yeah. In GitHub and the projects right now, there's like the clones and the insights and so forth. And how do you sort of see what you're sharing back to the projects differing from that? I don't see them as very different. I just see them as kind of very complementary things. If I'm a project maintainer, I definitely care about how many people are cloning it because those are all potential contributors. But I also really care about how it's actually getting used because that's how I assess kind of the value of what I'm working on. If I have a project and it's just kind of it's people hacking on it, but no one actually using it. Well, that's maybe a miss or maybe that's what I wanted. But I just see this as kind of a way to augment this and give a full picture of how the project is getting used. Yeah, there's just a lot of things I wish GitHub provided more information on. And so we're supplementing GitHub releases being a great example. No idea about downloads on GitHub releases. Scarf can augment that. I have one that's question that's more directed at Scarf the aggregator, if it is an aggregator. And that I always, again, I'm interested in these kinds of tools, what they learn in their own existence. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the benefit to maintainers to better understand their user, user dynamics and profiles, but 
from the perspective of SCARF being sort of the pass-through of all this information, you might become privy to other kinds of dynamics as it relates to open source usage. And so maybe it's a bit early to ask this question, but I'm just kind of curious from the perspective of SCARF, the intermediary, have you started to notice any sort of behaviors or characteristics that were either interesting or surprising to you as the middleman? I think one thing that really surprised us early on was just how slow people are to upgrade to new versions of your software. It's really slow. It's so slow. You'll push out a bug fix and be like, oh, everything's good. No one's down. Like, that was early on shocking to us about really critical bug fixes that are just like, they're just out there. <laughs> they're going to be out there for a long time. Yeah, I think that was a really surprising thing. And even now, after like some packages that'll have removed Scarf.js, like they're still collecting tons of metrics just from old versions. And so software that gets put out there is out there forever. And like that notion, I think, was really enforced by the data. Well, this is fantastic. And I hope that now that we've learned a little bit more about this, explore Scarf a little bit. At least I, I think it has a lot of potential. So thank you for sharing all that and how your approach is so unique and respectful of individuals. I, I'm just excited. Me too. I, yeah, I, this is, it's a very fun topic. There's tons of interesting things in it. And I always love, always love discussing it with people. So yeah, thanks for having me. So for someone whose interest we piqued today, how can they get in touch with you, follow you? Where are you online? Yeah, we're online in most of the normal places. We're scarf underscore OSS on Twitter, scarf dash SH on GitHub. And you can see kind of we put out, we open source as much as we can. We have a community Slack that you can get into, but really you can find everything on our website, which is just scarf.sh. That pretty much has every link you might want. But I just encourage anyone, if this is something that you want to talk about, learn more about, just hop in Slack and chat with us. We always love talking to more people and getting more people involved. Excellent. We always like to end our episodes with a round of value ads where we share something that has brought value, joy, or meaning to our life recently. And I just had a proud father moment today. Our son is going to high school next year. And so the school's already sending out here are programs that you can get involved in and special academic careers and whatnot. And he just submitted his application for one of those programs, which is an early college program where his goal will be within the four years of high school to also earn at the same time a two-year associate degree from a local college here. And so I'm just super proud that he even wants to do that and apply for it. That was my highlight today. My highlight from the last week is the fact that we're starting to see the fact that we've got problems like Log4j really starting to illustrate we need to have that transparency in the ecosystem and automating the tracking of dependencies and letting people understand what's actually there. And the fact that there was a meeting at the White House last week was kind of cool. It's really raising up the elevation that we need to fix our security in this whole infrastructure and understand how everything relates to each other dependency-wise. So I'm all stoked about that. I am stoked that I'm not dealing with it anymore as uh, someone who had an issue in one of our programs. But I think my personal thing bringing me value this week has been we recently acquired an electric tea kettle. And I don't really know what I was doing before, but it has been an incredible value add. I have made so much tea 
New England is going through a bit of a cold snap. I think it's going down to like single digits again tonight. So I will be taking full advantage of it and not having to rely on turning on gas and having your partner send you angry text messages because the tea kettle is howling in a room that you can't hear. So <laughs> I think overall it is, it's improved access to hot water and reduced grumblings in our own personal environment. <laughs> Sophia, I need to tell you about this device from Japan I have for my hot water, which basically boils it up to a certain temperature and then holds it there all the time. So all you have to do is walk in and press a button and you get hot water ready for your tea. Can you send a link? Because I'm also <laughs> drinking and then I have one of these teapots, which if you listened to one of the previous episodes, I just talked about my new tea kettle. And I have the issue that I like, oh, I'm out of tea. And then I have to go into the kitchen, turn on the water, wait five minutes for it to boil. Remember to go back because usually it's already cold by the time I remember again. <laughs> it's very game changing for yeah, the tea consumption for sure. I agree. <laughs> I have the, yeah, the one that holds it at a temperature and it was just night and day. Yeah, I, I love it. Excellent. Okay, my turn. Yeah, so I think for my value add in the open source vein, I have been for a long time, but especially even recently, the combination of org mode and Emacs and a specific package for org mode called org Rome has been really helpful just in my life broadly and at work. Just kind of full system for like taking notes and to do's and knowledge management and all sorts of things in one place. And it more brings me joy than it's helpful, I guess, but it can also visualize the whole set of backlinks of topics of my notes, which are just really fun to play with and stuff. But I use it so heavily just for everything in terms of my personal life. It's like the most immediate open source I'm like interacting with every day. And now that I don't really get to write a whole lot of code these days, it keeps me in my editor, which makes me feel nice. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. And we'll put links in the show notes for anyone who wants to follow up on these things. It is time to say thank you. Thank you, Abby, for joining us today and sharing your experience with us. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. And thank you, Kate and Sophia, for being panelists today. Thanks, Abby, for um, letting us give you a bit of an inquisition about how this is all working. And it's really cool. So thank you. Anytime. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us, podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.